Hey guys, joining me today is Dr. Robert Glover, the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy, a proven plan for getting what you want in love, sex, and life. Dr. Glover is an internationally recognized authority on the Nice Guy Syndrome. He is a frequent guest on radio talk shows and has been featured in numerous local and national publications. Through his book, online classes, workshops, podcasts, blogs, consultation and therapy groups, Dr. Glover has helped change the lives of countless men and women around the world. As a result of his work, Dr. Glover has helped thousands of nice guys transform from being passive, resentful victims to empowered, integrated males. Dr. Glover, welcome to the show. Kalane, it's good to be with you today. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to have you. As a recovering nice guy, you can imagine how excited I am to have you on the show today. I cannot wait to talk about masculinity and relationships, the nice guy syndrome, and other problems and challenges that guys face today. But before we do, please take a minute to fill in the gaps from that intro and tell us how did you get started on your journey? Uh, well, in terms of, of journey from my own recovery from nice guy syndrome, I am a recovering nice guy as well. And um, kind of just give you the quick backstory that led to me writing a book and to the work I do nowadays. My educational background is that I have a PhD in marriage and family therapy. I also have a couple of degrees in religion and was a minister for about eight years in a previous lifetime. It's been a while ago. And in terms of, of the nice guy stuff, if you had met me 25 years ago, I would have happily told you I was a nice guy. I would have told you I'm one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And I couldn't understand why everybody else didn't have a similar philosophy of life, why everybody else didn't try to think in terms of other people and their needs and their wants and to live respectfully and considerately and help out where they could and why people tended to be combative and negative and hurtful of other people. So I saw myself as a nice guy. And what happened is that two or three years into my second marriage, my um, then wife seemed unhappy most of the time. So I was kind of working overtime, trying to make her happy, trying to please her, trying to solve whatever came up that she was upset about, trying to get her in the mood to have sex. Yeah, I was just working really hard, just overtime, nice guy kind of stuff. But at the same time, as I said, she was rarely happy. And she would even, you know, tell me that I was the problem. And I'm thinking, how can I be the problem? I'm working really hard to make you happy. And she would say that she just couldn't take my passive aggressive behavior. And I really wasn't sure what that meant for some time, but she would say, I'd rather be with a jerk. At least a jerk, you know they're going to treat you badly. But you're nice to me most of the time, but then you're not. Then you're passive aggressive, you cut me, you make biting comments, you embarrass me in public, or then you have your victim pukes, and I don't even know you're upset about something, and then you're volatile, you blow up, and come to find out this has been bothering you for six months, and I didn't even know it. And she said, I just can't take it anymore. You've got to go get some help. And I thought, well, okay, I loved the woman. I didn't want to lose the relationship. I didn't really understand why I was the problem. <laughs> I thought she was. So I went and got help. I actually started out by going to a 12-step group, started seeing a therapist. And really, I went and joined this group and joined this therapist, trying to find out why me being a nice guy didn't make her happy and why it didn't make her want to have sex with me and think I was a great person and why she still complained and was negative and moody. But luckily, in the groups I was in, and I then later joined a men's group and worked with a couple of therapists along the way, I started learning some valuable tools. Tools like being honest and transparent, 
learning how to deal with conflict directly, learning how to set boundaries, learning how to make my needs a priority and ask for what I want in clear ways from people who are available to help me get my needs met. I learned that I needed to start getting reconnected with men, embrace the masculine part of myself and spend less time trying to please an unhappy woman. And while I was working on these issues and seeing changes in me and even some changes in my marriage, I started noticing that a good number of the men coming to me for therapy and often for relationship therapy with their wife or girlfriend were saying a lot of the same things I'd been saying in my marriage. I'm a nice guy. I do my best to make my wife happy. I'm a much better guy than her ex. I'm raising her kids. I treat her well. I don't hold anything back from her, but she's never happy. It's never enough. When's it going to be my turn? How come she's angry all the time? How come she never wants to have sex anymore? And I thought, I can finish these guys' sentences for them. And it was kind of actually a relief and kind of like, you know, ah. Uh, almost a breath of fresh air, believe it or not, to realize I'm not the only person struggling with this paradigm that if I'm just a good guy, then everything should work out and I'll be liked and loved to get my needs met. So as I kind of had a handful of these guys coming to me for therapy, I started sharing what I was learning about nice guy syndrome. And I started a no more Mr. Nice Guy men's group. We met every other Wednesday. And I told the guys, I'll start writing uh, just some lessons about what I'm learning about my own nice guy, how I became a nice guy, the patterns of nice guy syndrome, why it doesn't work, how to more effectively get our wants and needs met. And so we met every other week. I'd write them a chapter. I'd hand it out to them. And soon these guys and often their wives and girlfriends were saying, you need to write a book. There's lots of people out there that could benefit from this. You need to go on Oprah. And um, never made it on Oprah, but over a period of about seven years, I did indeed write a book. It took me about three more years to get it published. And then it came out in hardcover in February of 2003, so close to 15 years ago. And uh, it's interesting because several publishers turned the book down. They said they liked it, but that their marketing department said that men wouldn't buy a self-help book especially a book that told them they were losers. And I kept saying, you don't understand the men that I'm addressing this to. Well, it did get published. And now almost 15 years later, the royalty checks keep getting bigger every year. So the sales keep going up and up and up. And it's really gratifying, you know, when I talk to various life coaches and I, and I bump in, you mentioned a friend of yours, Nathan Seward. I met him on an airplane. We were flying from Los Angeles to Puerto Vallarta, happened to be sitting next to each other through a conversation. Come to find out he's a life coach working with men. And he asked what I did. And I told him and told him I've written a book. And he asked the name and I said, no more Mr. Nice Guy. And he goes, I refer that book to every one of my clients. So it is gratifying because when I started my own nice guy work, there wasn't much out there. There was Iron John by Robert Bly, Michael Mead, you know, kind of the mythopoetic type approach to men's issues, kind of going out in the woods with a drum circle and shouting hope. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, it's some good stuff, but there wasn't really much practical information out there for men. And now I see on the web. There's so many websites, blogs, discussion forums, so many men's coaches, men's meetup groups, support groups. And it's gratifying, especially when I hear how many of them recommend or read my books. So I'm glad that I've been a part of a movement. And I'm still a recovering nice guy. I'm still working on me. As I told you, recently married for the third time. And my relationships challenge me in all the best way. My work continues to challenge me and keeps me growing. That's the background and the current edition of No More Mr. Nice Guy. 
Thank you. Thank you for sharing all that with us, Dr. Glover. And yes, you are part of a movement and this movement keeps getting bigger and bigger with each year that passes. But I think that you're not just only a part of this movement, but you are definitely one of the founders, or at least that's how I see it. And speaking about nice guy syndrome, I would like to dive in a little deeper and one of the things that really stands out when you suffer from this syndrome is that you keep hiding your mistakes. And it's easy to recommend to someone, okay, you should stop hiding your mistakes. Instead, use them as opportunities to learn or improve and all that stuff. But you know as well as I do that that is easier said than done. What are your insights when it comes to this challenge that guys are facing? Well, uh, that's a, a good question because 20 years ago, I would have been, you know, the master Houdini of hiding my mistakes. <laughs> and and I, I even b- kind of borrowed a line I'd heard somewhere and I put it in the book and I said, for nice guys, if at first you don't succeed, hide the evidence. <laughs> um, and, okay. and when I just, uh, the most basic answer I have is something that I say in the book and I recommend to people all the time, go get help. Go find some safe people to do your work with. You can't do this on your own. You didn't become a nice guy in isolation. You can't break free of it in isolation. And in fact, that's kind of a nice guy pattern to think we can do this all on our own. But you can't release toxic shame on your own. And you can't overcome this uh, dynamic that you've mentioned of hiding mistakes on your own. In fact, trying to go it alone is still just you trying to hide your mistakes. You don't want anybody to see where your rough edges are, where you're flawed or less than perfect. But as I talk about in the book, we all have rough edges. We're all bumbling our way through. And that's what allows us to connect with other people. Trying to hide those mistakes and hide our imperfections and flaws turns us into what I call Teflon men, where nothing sticks to us But we, as you said, we don't learn from our mistakes and it makes it more difficult actually to connect with other people because we do indeed connect around our rough edges. So what I recommend is I said, go find safe people to start opening up. And when I mentioned that one of the first things I did was I joined a 12-step group. And the 12-step group I joined was one called Sex Addicts Anonymous. And I quickly found out I wasn't a sex addict. I wasn't having enough sex to be a sex addict. But what I also quickly found out that the guys there, this was, you know, hardcore. This was life and death for them. There were some guys that were really out of control with their behavior. And uh, they were real. I mean, and I thought, man, I can be real here. And as I said, I have two degrees in religion. I've been a minister prior to this time when I actually started going into therapy. I grew up in a fundamental Christian church. And I thought I was a fairly honest guy, but I really realized I hid everything. Everything that I thought somebody might react negatively to, that I might get rejected by, I might get scolded, yelled at, or sent to hell for, I hid. And in that 12-step group, I just made a decision. I'm just going to open up and tell everything that I've always kept hidden. If I have any impulse to hold it back or hide it, I'm going to tell it. And it was liberating. I mean, it's probably one of the most joyous times in my life, believe it or not, when I was going to that group like at 6.30 in the morning. And here I was just talking about the shit that I'd kept secret and hidden all the way from just little things like I accidentally broke something and so I hid it or I I made up a story that wasn't quite true to deflect my wife's attention away from something. And I, I can still remember a really powerful moment when I was going to this group and I was seeing a therapist as well. And so, so this is pretty early on in my nice guy recovery. 
And I had an impulse, and it was a sexual impulse, and I had a lot of shame about it. It made me feel really bad about myself that I had this sexual impulse. Now, I didn't act on it, which I was happy for, but if I had, it would have been a pretty unhealthy thing to do. But it caused me shame that I even had the thoughts about it. And so I went to my 12-step group at 6.30 in the morning and talked about you know this sexual impulse that I had. And the group just listened and then basically said, thanks for sharing, Robert. (laughs) Okay. That didn't go so bad. And then actually, it was about an hour later, I had an appointment with my therapist. So I went saw my therapist as a woman and I told her the same story. And she just looked at me with compassion and said, well, let's talk about it. Let's see what that story is telling us. And I mean, she didn't judge me or think I was a terrible person. She actually helped me explore and go take a look at my dark side, my shadow side. So driving back home, my wife, you need to know, was an extremely critical person. And I used to tell her her middle name ought to be overreact because that's what she did in pretty much every situation. And she usually didn't overreact when I'd say that because she knew it was true, actually. So I'm driving home thinking, I don't know how this is going to go, but I've told my group, I've told my therapist, nothing bad came of it, nothing negative. I'm going to go home and tell her. And even if she overreacts to it, I've done the work I need to do. And I went home and I said, I need to tell you something. We sat down on the bed. I told her, I told her, I've told my group, I've told my therapist, I needed to tell you. And she just looked at me and said, well, it doesn't surprise me. I'm glad you told me. I'm glad you've worked on it in your group and with your therapist. And, um, you know, I hope that's not something that you ever act out. And she never brought it up again. Didn't react to it. Just, I thought, this is really fucking amazing that just by being honest and transparent, But the thing is, I had to do that with safe people first. I could not have done that with my then wife without first practicing and kind of getting through the anxiety of it with those safe people. So to make that long story short, my answer is find safe people. It can be 12-step groups. It can be men's groups. It can be a men's coach. It can be a therapist. It can be a minister. It can be your best friend. Usually don't make it your partner, your girlfriend, your wife, because you have an investment in them not reacting strongly or negatively to things you tell them. So go work on it first with people that have no investment in this and will and, and we'll just listen and maybe give you helpful feedback and then practice sharing it with people where there's a lot more investment in the relationship. Great advice. As you were speaking about some of the symptoms, you said that you do not develop this syndrome on your own. This syndrome has much to do with our upbringing, with our early life conditions. And I would love it if you would share a few details about these ingredients in early life that actually come together to create these symptoms that we can see later in our adult life. Okay, let me um, answer that in a couple of ways. One, in kind of a general how children adapt and develop survival mechanisms to early life experiences and then make it a little bit more specific to nice guy syndrome. Okay, great. So I'll just give you a little uh, child development 101 quick overview. But every child, I remember when I took child development, the one main takeaway I came from that was that children are inherently narcissistic. They are the center of their universe. And number two, they're overwhelmingly terrified of abandonment because abandonment means death. So what happens is when children experience painful things, even before their reasoning brain is developed or online, in fact, that when we're born, 
the only part of our brain that is fully functioning is the part involved in survival, the part that drives our heartbeat, our breathing, respiration, just basic survival needs that a human has. But also the part is online that is survival in terms of dealing with threat. And it's that part of our brain that controls our fight, flight, and freeze mechanism. Now, these stages of brain development mimic human evolution, and all humans develop the same way. When we're born, that survival part of the brain's online. The reasoning part of our brain is not. It doesn't get fully wired in men till about 25 years old. So that's why adolescent males often make really, really bad decisions. The reasoning part of their brain just is not wired. So what happens is at a very early age, before the part of our brain that has memory, picture memory doesn't actually start being recorded in the brain till maybe three, but probably more likely four or five years old. If you think back to your earliest memories, most that you can remember were probably around four or five years old. So picture memory doesn't get stored up earlier than that. Language is not operating in the brain till maybe one and a half to two years old and because the brain is underdeveloped. So what happens when a child experiences painful things, it reacts quite instinctively. It doesn't react rationally or maturely. And every child does a couple of things to try to manage those painful experiences. Now, painful experiences might be you're hungry and you don't get fed on time, or you're wet or you're dirty and you don't get changed, or you're cold or you're lonely and you're crying and nobody picks you up and holds you. Now, it could even be more than that. It could be physical abuse or sexual abuse or being screamed at or shaken by stressed out parents or depressed parents. Lots of things can happen. And the child, as I said, internalizes that they are the cause of that. Now, it's not accurate, but because children are narcissistic, they internalize, I caused that. It's my fault. It's on me. There's something about me that causes this painful experience. So every child develops a couple of survival mechanisms. The first is to try to soothe the uncomfortable feelings they're having might stick their thumb in their mouth, they might cry, they might quit crying, they might sleep more, they might eat more, but they do something to try to soothe. The second survival mechanism children develop is something to try to prevent that painful experience from happening again. So maybe if they, you know, they don't think, but if crying gets negative responses, maybe they quit crying. If doing something is painful, they try to quit doing it. They're not thinking it, it's just a, a reflex, like putting your hand on a hot stove. You quickly quit doing that, it's painful. And if one mechanism can accomplish both things, that's really elegant. And that's true for nice guy syndrome. We internalized the belief inaccurately that we were the cause of the painful things that happened to us. And so we tended to believe there must be something wrong with me. So we tried to become what we thought other people want us to be. And we tried to hide, you mentioned that, hide things that we think might create a negative reaction as a way of soothing the pain we're having and trying to prevent that pain from happening again. Now here's the clincher. Those of us who identify as being nice guys or recovering nice guys, we developed these survival mechanisms before we had rational, reasonable thought and before we had picture memory. So they're part of our DOS, our operating system, our machine language that's operating below consciousness. But because the parts of the brain that that's stored up in is emotional memories wired into every other part of the brain, it influences all of our thinking, feeling, and reactions. Now, to make it more specific, lots of things can contribute to the nice guy syndrome in terms of being, getting plugged into these survival mechanisms. It could be abandonment, it could be abuse, it could be neglect in childhood. 
more specific things I see in a lot of nice guys. A lot of us spend a lot more time around women than we did around men. Maybe dad worked a lot or dad wasn't there at all or was gone quite a bit. And most of us spent a lot of time around women, whether it be mom, whether it be in preschool, whether it be in elementary school. Most of us had fairly, uh, very few strong male influences. So a lot of nice guys I work with, my term is they're still hanging out in the nursery. They're just still hanging out and doing things that get them easy validation because they've never been initiated into that challenging, scary world of the masculine. And we need mature men to help do that for us. So our disconnect from men, overconnect with women is part of it. For a lot of nice guys, it really gets triggered even bigger when they discover the opposite sex and they want to get love and affection and sex and have no clue how to go about doing that. Many of us try, well, we don't want to be like those jerks that we hear mom or the women complain about. So we think, well, if I'm just a really good guy, let the woman I have a crush on get to know me over time. She'll see that I'm a really good guy. I'll try to do nice things for her. And then she'll like me and want to be my girlfriend. And most of us listening know, most of us have tried that at least once or more. And most of us realize it never works. (laughs) The, the women never go, oh, he's such a nice guy. I want to fuck him. You know, they go, oh, <laughs> yeah. you're such a nice guy. You're going to make some lucky woman very happy someday. Well, <laughs> why not you? I want you. Oh, I, I just don't see you that way. So um, it seems like when, we're, when we start trying to date or get connected, that it really triggers our nice guy stuff. And then we think there's something wrong with us even more, right? Because why can't I get a woman to like me? What we don't realize is that dating has not existed in human history for more than 100 years at most, and that's in Western culture. And in Eastern culture, a lot of, in a lot of areas, they still don't date. You know, your relationships are arranged for you. And even in Western culture, where dating's maybe existed 100 years, up until about the last 50 years ago, people married somebody they knew from childhood. It was a next door neighbor, somebody they went to church with. I mean, you married somebody that lived nearby. And so dating is not in our DNA. So a lot of guys develop an even deeper inferiority complex when they start trying to date and they're not very good at it, but they think everybody else is. So there's everybody else has got it figured out. What's wrong with me? So that's just one more thing that I've seen really add fuel to that nice guy. I'm not good enough. I'll just keep trying to be a better guy syndrome. Okay, that's really interesting. And I was thinking about the fact that nice guys do not express their needs I could say they do not express their needs with clarity, but in my experience, they do not express their needs or they very rarely express their needs. So I was thinking about your experience with this and the things that you have told in your book. And I would love if you would share some details about what does it actually mean to express your needs with clarity? Okay, great question, because this is one of the first things I had to start working on. Before I even realized I was working on nice guy syndrome, before I even gave it a name, I started working on making my needs a priority and and getting them met in a healthy, mature way. Let me give a little bit of an overview of something that I call covert contracts. And you've read the book, so you're familiar with them. And a lot of people tell me this is one of the most powerful takeaways for them from No More Mr. Nice Guys, the idea of covert contracts. But basically, is my theory and observation, and I just keep seeing it over and over again, that all nice guys operate by three unconscious, that's why I call them covert, covert contracts. And these three covert contracts all are manifested in an if-then theorem. And the three covert contracts are this. Covert contract number one, 
if I'm a good guy, if I'm a nice guy, then people will like me and love me. And the women I desire will desire me back. So we keep thinking, if I just keep being a nicer guy, a better guy, then I'll be universally liked. Now, unfortunately, nobody on this planet has ever been universally liked. And unfortunately, trying to get other people's approval usually makes you fairly uninteresting. And even though people may like you, they maybe don't feel a very strong attraction to you because you're, you're working so hard to try to get their approval. So covert contract number one, if I'm a good guy, then people will like me and love me. Covert contract number two, if I meet other people's needs without them having to ask, then they will meet my needs without me having to ask. Now, I think on the surface, it's not hard to see why that isn't particularly functional. And it's the primary reason that my ex-wife, my second wife, who I was married to when I wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy, told me, you're passive aggressive, you know, you have victim pukes. Well, primarily it was because of that. I went out of my way to constantly meet her needs. I'd give her gifts. I'd give her surprises. I'd do whatever I could to make her life easier. And um, according to my scorekeeping, she rarely did much back for me, <laughs> including not wanting to have sex with me very often, even though prior to our marriage, she seemed to want to do it all the time. So I was doing all these things to try to get her to meet my needs without her knowing there was a contract. And so then when I'd be frustrated and resentful, I'd get passive aggressive or I'd have these victim pukes or I'd blow up and all this stuff would come gushing out of me about how resentful I was and how what a terrible wife she was and how much I gave to her and she never gave nothing back. So there's one core issue is that covert contract. And I'm going to come back to that in just a minute because it relates to your question. And the third covert contract is that if I do everything right, you already asked about that. If I do if I do everything right, then I'll have a smooth, problem-free life. Well, the biggest flaw in that covert contract is that life is not smooth or problem-free. The very nature of life is change, is chaos, is evolution, right? There is no such thing as a smooth, problem-free life. And there's no such thing as you doing everything right. And trying to do everything right to have a smooth, problem-free life, just as we've talked about, usually it leads to you hiding most things that, that you have shame or embarrassment about or don't want to be seen. So let's go back to the needs. Here's the core problem most nice guys have. Most of us, if we actually just sit down and ponder it for a little bit, have some degree of shame about having needs in the first place. We think I shouldn't have needs. Other people's needs are more important. I should meet other people's needs rather than focusing on mine. If I have needs, people are going to think I'm bad. They're going to get angry at me. They may reject me. They may leave me. And most of this is a result of those internal, inaccurately internalized stories we told ourselves at a very young age. We came to believe we were not important. Our needs are not important. Therefore, we have to hide that we have needs. Now, that tends to do a few things for nice guys, is we do tend to live by covert contracts of giving to get. We do tend to surround ourselves with people who are actually not very good at giving to us. We don't do conscious things consciously to invite systems, people, groups, organizations, professionals into our life to help us get our needs met, because that would be too conscious of me saying, I have a need, I have, I have a toothache, I have a need for a dentist, therefore I should call a dentist. And the other part of this is that nice guys in general are not good receivers. Probably every woman I've ever known in my life, and including children and stepchildren, have told me it's really hard to give to me. 
and I just acknowledge my wife, who is Mexican, calls me either Senor or Doctor Difficile, uh, Doctor Difficult, <laughs> Be- because I don't. I I've actually what's happened is I've actually gotten good at giving myself what I need, so I don't really like need a new tie or a new pair of gym shorts. Well, if I need them, I usually go get them. I've gotten good at that. But what I noticed, especially back before I really did my nice guy recovery, when I was always trying to give to my ex-wife, my then wife, and she told me, you know, I try to do nice things for you, but as soon as I do, you either don't let me, or you just turn around and do something back for me, like within seconds. And then I don't ever really get pleasure or joy of giving to you. You don't let me. And, you know, I, I listened to that, and she was right. And so now I tell the men I work with, you know, I'll ask them, does it give you joy or pleasure to give to other people? And the majority say, yeah, I I like it. I feel good when I can help somebody, when I can give to them. And I'll tell them, other people experience the same joy and pleasure from giving. And who are you to rob these people of their joy from giving to you? You need to learn, you need to practice accepting people giving to you. So where I usually start is I start with guys, number one, practicing giving to themselves, making their needs a priority, often making a list of people and systems that they already have in their life that help them meet their needs and what they need to have in their life. And I call these reciprocal cooperative systems where everybody involved is getting their needs met. You and I have a reciprocal cooperative system. I'm helping you with your podcast, so you'll have you know another podcast you can put out there. You're helping me talk about something I like to talk about and helping me sell books. It's a reciprocal system. We're both getting our needs met. And it doesn't matter if it's a dentist, a doctor, your men's group, your best friend. Mature people consciously invite other people, other systems, other professionals, other groups into their life to help them get their needs met. And so it is a process. It's a working process. But it begins by you making a conscious decision to make your needs a priority, which scares a lot of nice guys because, again, it triggers that belief that people will think I'm bad if I'm putting me first. But I tell them, put you first. Fill your own bucket. Take conscious responsibility for inviting people into your life that can help you fill your own bucket. And then what you give to others will come from the overflow not from a place of emptiness or deprivation or neediness or a covert contract. So make your needs a priority, fill your bucket, and then you'll be a much more loving person. You'll give in a healthier way. You'll give to people what they need to receive, not what you need to give to fill your empty bucket. So it's a practice, and it's something that I'm still practicing to this day. Yeah, I hear you. I still struggle with being able to receive from others. That is a major issue for me as well. And I just left when you told me about your wife and Dr. Difficile because my wife is constantly telling me that it's no fun shopping for gifts for my birthday and <laughs> she doesn't know how to surprise me with anything because I'm constantly buying whatever I need and all the rest. It's easy. I don't necessarily needed so <laughs> well and and i'll even give kind of a, a little bit of a crass example but it's really true when i got divorced my ex-wife had issues and one of the issues was was around being sexual and when i you know came to realize over time she could only be sexual with people she wasn't supposed to be sexual with and so prior to our marriage she was very sexual once we got married one night on our honeymoon she says aren't you glad that now that we're married we don't have to pretend to like sex anymore <laughs> and i thought well i I wasn't pretending. So um, 
So we had very little sex over the next 14 years, and what we did was pretty routine, and it always had to meet her standards. Well, when I got divorced and became single and started dating, one of the things that really surprised me is how many women wanted to have sex with me. I mean, women propositioned me, said, I don't really necessarily want to date you, but I want to fuck you. And, and so I started saying yes. And one of the things I started noticing that really surprised me, mainly because of how things have been in my previous relationship, is how many women I met took great pride in giving blowjobs. Well, at first, actually, it made me uncomfortable because my ex-wife had disliked that so much. And so I thought, well, I don't want to put these women out. I, I don't want them, you know. And at first, I was really uncomfortable. And it actually took some women kind of saying, you don't like it? You're not happy? You don't want me to do this? I said, oh, well, no, I just, if you don't want to, I don't want you to. And they go, you don't get it. I like, you know, giving blowjobs. And I came to realize there's many women out there that take pride in their blowjobs. And I, I finally came to the decision, who am I to rob these women of their joy, of their pleasure, of going down on me and doing it well? So I actually, as maybe comical and paradoxical as it sounds, actually learning to let women give to me sexually was a big part of this. No, I don't need another pair of gym shorts. I don't need a tie. I don't wear ties anymore. But I can let a woman give to me in the ways that let her express her love and her pleasure in giving to me. So as comical or ironic or crass as it sounds, learning to let women give me a good blowjob was actually part of my nice guy recovery. I'll just put that out there for anybody listening where it might be relevant. Wow. That's amazing. And thank you. Thank you so much for being so vulnerable and sharing these very intimate details of your life. Dr. Glover, many of the men who reach out to me are currently recovering from a painful separation or divorce. What would you advise them to do? Go connect with men and know that you're going to survive or get through it. I have been divorced twice. They were both painful. They were both costly. I typically lost friends in both of them just because if you have a couple friends they tend to get caught in the middle so for me especially after my second divorce when I was a lot more conscious I started putting myself out there in social situations with no agenda I started going to coffee shops to do my work on my computer. I took dance lessons. And everywhere I went, I really made a point of connecting with men. When I'd go to the gym, I'd introduce myself to men. I joined men's groups. I just went out of my way to get out of my house and connect with men in some way. It seemed to be a good remedy for a lot of things, for loneliness, for feeling like there's something wrong with me or I was defective, for kind of soaking up some masculine energy, for enjoying myself after the pain of a relationship ending. So that would be my number one advice. Get out and in whatever way you can, connect with men. Go do things you like to do and then go find other men that are doing those things as well. Great advice. So guys, go out there and you don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to be on this journey towards recovery on your own. Create a band of brothers and put yourselves out there in social situations. All right, Dr. Grover, as we are reaching the final part of the show, I would like to ask you a few personal questions that will give the audience invaluable pieces of wisdom to help them on their journey. I'm, 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 I'm smiling. I haven't been personal enough for you. Okay, bring the personal questions on. Okay. <laughs> so I take it you're ready for the final. Bring it. I'm ready. All right. Here's the first question. If you were to recommend one book 
that every man must read, in addition to No More Mr. Nice Guy, <laughs> which uh, has been recommended several times on this podcast, at least seven, what would it be and why? I'm going to cheat. I'm going to give two books. Okay. Can I do that? Sure. Okay. The first is one that I read when I went through my first divorce. And I know it probably, I'd say it helped save my life. And I have read it several times. I've taught classes on it. And it probably was a big influence in my writing of No More Mr. Nice Guy. But it's a book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Dr. Susan Jeffers. Unfortunately, she passed away about four or five years ago of cancer, but it was the cancer that actually got her writing the book in the first place. But everybody I've ever recommended that book to has loved it. Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffers. The second book that I especially recommend to men, and I read excerpts of it pretty much every day uh, as part of my daily meditative reading, is a book called The Way of the Superior Man by David Dada, D-E-I-D-A. And I've done a couple of workshops. I've gone to a couple of workshops with David. And he probably is the most profound, amazing teacher I've ever experienced. And he's really bright. He gets men. He gets women. He gets there. He gets who we are at an energetic level. And he's smart. He's funny. And he's practical. So read The Way of the Superior Man. Parts of it, first time you read it, might seem kind of weird and kind of out there. It did to me. But the more I read it, the more it makes sense. And if you get a chance to go do a workshop with David, I highly recommend it. Okay, all right. Here's the second question. If you had the opportunity to talk to your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give him? What would you tell him to do differently? I would tell my 20-year-old self, if it scares you, go do it. I told my 40-year-old self that when I turned 40. I thought, how do I want the second half of my life to be different? I pondered it for about a year up to my 40th birthday, and it finally hit me that I didn't want to die afraid. It's not that I was afraid of dying. I didn't want to live my life afraid. And so that's what I tell my 20-year-old self. If it scares you, go do it. Do you have certain regrets from your 20s, things that you wanted to do and didn't, or were there any things that scared you in particular? Um, you know, I tell people I really have almost no regrets. I don't tend to ruminate about the past and wish I'd done things different. Everything I did or didn't do, brought me to where I'm sitting today. And right now I'm sitting at my desk talking to you in Romania on my iMac in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. I have a beautiful wife, beautiful home. I get to travel. I get to do workshops and seminars. I get to help change the world. So what is there to regret? I don't really have regrets. But I tell people the one thing that if I could do it different, I think I would do different. When I was raising my son and my stepson, they were six months apart. My stepson was the son of my second wife. I was so fused and emotionally wrapped up with my wife trying to manage her, her drama all the time that I wished I'd spent more what I'll just call a quality time with my son and stepson. Specifically, at night, they often wanted me to make up a story, tell them a story, or read to them. And I often was too busy, too tired, too fused with my then-wife to do that. And, you know, that's about the only thing I'd say I wish I could go back and do different, that I wish I had read to my sons more. My biological son has turned out well. He's got a master's degree in wildlife biology. He's an amazing father himself. He's a smart kid who's turned out well. But yeah, I wish I'd read to him more. So our children, our boys do not necessarily inherit our syndrome. That's very good to hear because I have two boys as well. One is very close to his 14-year anniversary. That would be this November. And the smaller one, he's just nine. But again, it's really good to hear. 
Dr. Glover, for the final question, I would like to ask you to share a piece of advice that your father never got to tell you, or maybe he didn't know about being a man in today's world. I'm talking about information or advice that would have changed everything in your adult life, one that you will be sure to share with the future generations. Again, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to think of two things, because two popped into my mind. The first one, I'll just say it briefly, but I wish my father, and this isn't so much about being a man, but I wish my father had told me that I was smart. He didn't. He implied it in ways, but he was critical. And so I know that I was smart. In fact, I don't think I figured out I was smart till I was in my 40s. And I started looking at what I'd accomplished in life, and I thought, wait a minute, a dumb person doesn't do all those things. And even when I'm surrounded by, you know, really scary, smart people, I never feel intimidated. So I wish he'd told me I was smart. I think I would have gotten out of my own way and tried a lot of things at a young age. But maybe more directly to masculinity, I wish my father had told me, don't try to please women. Uh, Number one, you can't do it. Number two, it doesn't please them and it doesn't attract them. Please yourself and that will be a natural attraction to the women of the world. I wish he told me that. That's a very powerful place to come from. All right. I love it. (laughs) Okay. Dr. Glover, this has been great. Before we say goodbye, please tell us about the projects that currently excite you and where can people find you? Well, first of all, they can find me very simply by going to my website, which is drglover.com, D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com. They can Google me, Robert Glover. They can Google no more Mr. Nice Guy. I come up at the top of both of those pages. So it's pretty easy to find me. My website has online classes that I teach about relationship, work, and career. It has probably a couple hundred podcasts I've recorded about all aspects of recovery from the Nice Guy Syndrome. It's got blogs. It's got an online support group that guys can join in. It's got a list of certified, no more Mr. Nice Guy certified coaches and therapists around the world. So they can find me at drglover.com couple of things that are going on right now. I'm just wrapping up a proposal, working with my agent on it for another book based around concepts that I call positive emotional tension about what turns men and women on and what attracts them. So I'm really excited about getting that book written. Now, a real uncertain thing that I'm excited about, because it's been over a year in the process, is that Warner Brothers Studios here in America is actually working on a television show based on No More Mr. Nice Guy. The plan is for it to be a dark comedy for cable. So apparently they want it to be pretty edgy. There's some pretty big name people in terms of production involved, but it's been a slow process, but it might happen at some point. So that's something that actually I have no control over. I just get to kind of sit on the sidelines. My title is consultant, but I don't even know what that will look like, but it should be a lot of fun. So I've got my fingers crossed that that will pan out in some kind of interesting way. Fingers crossed. That's amazing. Congratulations. (laughs) All right. Dr. Glover, thank you again for joining us today. And I hope to have you again on the Managing Today podcast in the future. Colleen, it was great to talk to you. Great interview. Hope it's helpful to your listeners. I had a really good time. Guys, till next time. Take care.